Well, I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn once more to 2 Samuel 7, where we've been spending some time during this Advent season. As you do, I'm just curious. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself chosen for something, only to find out later that you were not chosen for the reasons that you thought you were? Uh, From the laughter, I take it yes would be the answer to that. I can think of a particular time in my life. I was in seminary, and I was chosen to be the student body president. Yeah, I know. Wow. Like somebody finally realized the potential I had. So I was a man of vision and, and so on and so on. Not really. No, really what it was, the reason I was chosen was I was the only one gullible enough to say yes. And uh, the position was not prestigious by any means. It only existed because the school was required to have it for their accreditation. And my responsibilities were literally plan student chapel every Friday and plan a barbecue at the end of the year. But I took it and I did well with it and all that. But still, it was one of those moments in life that nobody was looking at me saying, there's a leader that we need. No, no, no. Well, the reason I bring that up is this morning as we come to Second Samuel 7, we're going to see something about why does God choose people? Why does God make promises to us? And we're going to see that the answer to that is very different than what most people think. And we're going to take a look at that. Well, Second Samuel 7, I trust that you have found it. Um, several weeks ago, as Pastor Jay uh, introduced us to this text, he used this analogy of mountaintops. And 2 Samuel 7 is one of the mountain peaks in the Bible across the landscape of the redemptive plan that God has. This is one of the key texts. And we really see that if we looked at the structure of 2 Samuel, we see that the text intentionally slows down here. Uh, 2 Samuel has very little uh, in the way of people being quoted, and yet 2 Samuel 7 is all quotation, and uh, it marks an importance And this, of course, the reason it's important is we've been looking at this, uh, the Davidic covenant. This is the Davidic covenant. Um, And now that we've spent three weeks on it and next week four, I trust that anytime you hear someone talk about the Davidic covenant, you'll think right away, 2 Samuel 7. I know that. And and so it is good for us to look at this. This passage that we're going to look at today, it's... This is where God promises to establish David's throne forever. It's where he promises that there will be a future king, a king of kings. And what I want to do is I want us to be very clear. My goal today is not that we would leave here with a little bit more information, that we would study this text and have some facts about what God has done in the past, although knowing what God's done in the past has value. But my goal is this, that as we look at God's redemptive plan, that we would get a glimpse into God's heart. And in doing so, in understanding this text, I believe to understand this text is to truly value our salvation. And that's my goal for us today. I'd like to pray for us and ask God for his help in doing that. And then we'll go ahead and jump in and take a look at this passage once more. So pray with me, please. God, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for allowing us to be here, to be gathered together as your people. And Lord, the blessing of being in a well-lit building with the windows open, not worried about who sees us, the, the freedom to lift our voices and worship of you, the opportunity to open your scriptures and to allow you to speak to us, God, is just a privilege. 
Thank you, God, for not, allow, not, not leaving us in a place where we have to use our imaginations to figure out who you are, and to, to rely on our feelings, but God, to, to open up your word and to see how you revealed yourself to us. And God, as we do that process, help us, help us, help our hearts to be, to be moldable, help us to be teachable people. Speak to us today, Lord. We need your help in all of these things. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, through your spirit. Amen. Right, so before I read anything, I want to just get us situated a little bit where we are in, in this passage, Second Samuel 7, where we're at in David's life. If you came to our Christmas program, you will see that David had received this anointing, this promise that he was going to be the king. And yet it took some time for that to happen. And he didn't grasp the opportunities uh, that he had to take this. He waited on God to provide for him. And as we step into second Samuel seven, he is the king. David's been made the king. He has had some success uh, in terms of military campaigns. He's defeated the Philistines, pushed them out of Israel. And he's also brought the ark of the Lord back, back to where it should be. And David finds himself in a period of rest, a period of peace. Uh, By no means is he done with his military campaigns. But right now, this is a period of peace. And David is sitting in his house. And it dawns on him, wait a second, here I am sitting in a house. And the ark of God is still sitting in a tent. I need to fix this. I'm going to build a house for God. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel 7. What we're going to find is God is going to respond to David's plan in a very surprising way. And I'd like to read verse 1 through 17. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that's in your heart for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant, David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word of with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them. And so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. 
as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here we have God's response to David's plan. Initially, Nathan says, yep, sounds like a great plan. But then God comes in the middle of the night and speaks to Nathan and says, no, tell David this message. And at first, there's a little bit of a rebuke. God's kind of like, what, David's going to build me a house? When have I ever asked for a house? I haven't lived in a house. He doesn't need to build me a house. And then what we see here is actually God makes a promise to David, and he turns it around. There's a play on words here, a very intentional one, where in response to David's desire to build God a house, God says, no, I'm going to build David a house. But the words are being used differently here, okay? Get this, you'll see it on your study sheet. In response to David's desire to build God a house, David was talking about a temple, a physical building. God instead promises to build David a house. But here he's talking about a dynasty, Now, we previously have looked at this passage, not in as much detail as we're going to look at it today, but we saw with Pastor Jay that there are four specific things promised here. I don't know if you remember them. We're going to review them really quick. But we see here that there's a promised king. There's a promised dynasty. There's a charter for all of humanity. And there's a promised future kingdom. God gives David a a promise. And this right here, I want you to understand, this is a covenant. This is a covenant promise on the level. Theologians look at this and they see this on the level of the covenants made to Abraham, made to Moses. The word covenant's not used here, but even scripture views this as a covenant. For instance, Psalm 89 is an adaptation of David's response to God's promise. And Psalm 89 says this, listen, listen for the word covenant here. I will sing of the, of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You know, the interesting thing about that Psalm is it's not one of David's Psalms. This is actually attributed to Ethan, the Ezraite. And it's interesting because here, as he thinks about the promise made to David, he, he's praising God. He's, he's responding in worship. And, and you might wonder, why is this guy responding in worship to a promise made to somebody else? I mean, we get David's excited about this, but why would some guy named Ethan be excited? Well, here's the answer because Ethan understood this. Just as we said, we looked at verse 19 a couple weeks ago. We haven't gotten there yet, but verse 19 talks about David's responding, and he talks about this being instruction for mankind. Or we talked about how a good translation for the Hebrew there would be a charter for mankind. This is for all people, and the psalmist knows this. This isn't just a promise for David. This is for everybody. This is good news for all of us. In fact, this is the next development in God's redemptive plan for the entire world. And so David's going to respond. And what we're going to see starting in verse 18 is he demonstrates a very different character from that of King Saul. King Saul rarely listened to his prophets. Often when God spoke and it wasn't what Saul was planning, Saul would respond, try to negotiate a little bit. 
But here, David listens and he receives God's promise. And what we're going to see here is he receives God's promise with humility, with worship, and with expectation. I'm going to read verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 29. I want you to listen for these things as David responds. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Wow, what a response. And what I want us to see here is those elements in David's response here as he's, he's responding. We see that first response really is one of humility. It's basically to say, who am I? And David knows he was merely a man. You might recall last week we looked at his life. He came from very humble circumstances. We saw how God had allowed obscurity, uh, monotony, danger, hardship, all to be part of his life. All things that shaped him into the leader he would become. He also knew that he was a fallible man, and yet God had chosen him for this great task. So David, he he responds in humility. And in doing so, then David is moved to worship. Looking at verse 20 and 22, I'll read verse 22 only. It says, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all we have heard with our ears. Wow, God, you're amazing. This is what David's saying. He's, he's reflecting on this. And just as the psalmist in Psalm 89 responds to this promise in worship, David's responding to the psalm in worship. He's not responding the way that Saul would have, where Saul would have kind of tried to, uh, let's see, let's bargain a little bit. How can I make sure I can build this temple? No, David merely listens. He accepts, he receives, he worships. And he's moved to expectation because he believes God has said this, and at the end of this, verse 28, 29, David speaks words that just reflect a deep belief. God, you're going to do this. I know you're going to do this. I'm expecting it. I'm expecting it. 
So we've seen what God's promised, and we've seen how David's responded. What we want to talk about today is how should we respond to God's promises? But before we get there, what I want to do, I think we need to take a moment and really examine why God makes these promises. What I want us to do is I want us to see the heart of a God who's a promise-making, promise-keeping God. This is so important for us. On your study sheet there, we see that David basically asks, why me? And maybe as you've looked at David's life, you've asked the same thing. God, why would you choose this guy? He, don't, don't, God, don't you know how much he's about to mess up? I mean, David was a pretty good guy. Uh, the Bible describes him as a guy, a man after God's own heart. We see that he is a more godly leader than Saul. And yet this is 2 Samuel 7. And just a few chapters later, 2 Samuel 11, what's going to happen? Well, a lady comes around named Bathsheba. And David's going to see her bathing. He's going to have an affair with her. He's going to try to cover it up by putting her husband intentionally in a battle situation where he knows he's not going to come out alive. David messes up spectacularly. And you might look at that and say, God, why would you choose this guy? And you know what's interesting is when God chose David, I want you to get this. He never looked at David and said, wow, what a handsome guy. I'd love to have him on my side of things. Wow, what a capable leader. Wow, what a righteous man. I need him. God never did that. And God chose David for other reasons. He chose David knowing that David was a broken man, a man who would stumble. In fact, as we take a step back and look at the broad redemptive plan, we see that God regularly makes promises to broken people. I list on your study sheet, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Moses, Israelites. These were all broken people. I mean, get this. Think about the very first time God spoke a word of promise regarding redemption. When was it? It was all the way back. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were put in this perfect setting. They were given one rule not to break. And they fail. They blow it. And here they are caught red-handed and God confronts them. And they're not even in a place where they've humbled themselves. They're not even in a place of repentance yet. They're still blaming each other. God, it's the woman you gave me that made me do this. It's kind of like he's saying, it's your fault, God. Eve, the serpent talked me into it. It's his fault. They're not even repenting right now. And in the midst of this, God speaks a word of promise to them. He says, from your offspring's going to come one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now he gets to consequences, doesn't he? But he speaks promise first. And how unlike us is this? When you catch someone red-handed, do you speak words of promise to them first? I'm going to redeem you. It's going to be wonderful. No, we get right to the consequences, right? So we're seeing here, God's making a promise to people who are nowhere near the place of being worthy of a promise. Nowhere, they, they don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. But God is still making promises to them, knowing they're broken people. We move forward. The next uh, revelation in terms of the redemptive plan is in Genesis 12 with Abraham. Here, God comes to this guy that many scholars look at and think, 
he probably was a pagan. He probably worshiped pagan guys. He's a nobody. And God comes to him and says, hey, Abraham, leave your father's house. Leave your land. Go to where I'm going to show you. I'm going to make a blessing. I'm going to become your God. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. Did God choose Abraham because he was such an upstanding guy? Well, he makes some really big mistakes. And actually, as we look at the generations that follow Abraham, his son, his grandson, his great-grandson, they all make big mistakes. And yet God keeps speaking words of promise. God remains faithful to all of them, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah. God makes promises to broken people. Now, these were guys, I don't want to paint the picture too bleak. These were men who did have moments where they were very faithful. They trusted God. They acted in faith. And yet they made mistakes. Move 400 years later, and their family has become the nation of Israel, but they're in captivity in Egypt. They see God do amazing things. You see the plagues. You see the Red Sea split. You see Pharaoh's army wiped out. You get to the mountain, and Moses is getting the Ten Commandments. It's glorious. You know who God is in? Oh, you decide to worship another God right there. It's almost laughable how quickly they turn on God. In no time at all, they've seen God reveal himself in all these amazing ways, and immediately they turn on God. God, didn't you know these people would be like this? Why did you choose this? Oh, this is your holy nation? They must be really righteous people, right? No. In fact, what I love is God doesn't make a secret of this. This is right in scripture. I gave you some references on your study sheet, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 9, Deuteronomy 30. I'm not going to turn there. I'm not going to read them, but I put them there for you to look up in your own time. But I love it because God comes out and says, listen, I didn't choose you because you were so good. Deuteronomy 7, I didn't choose you because you were such a great nation. It wasn't because you were big or, or you know, impressive. Deuteronomy 9, I didn't choose you because you were so righteous. In fact, you guys are pretty stiff-necked, ornery people. I love Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 is so interesting because in Deuteronomy 28, God has given the covenant to the, uh, the Israelites. He, the covenant comes with these stipulations. If you obey the covenant, this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to bless you in this way. If you break the covenant, this is what's going to happen. And, and it's all in if statements. If you do this, then this is going to happen. It's all kind of theoretical. But then 30 kind of shifts the language in an interesting way. Whoops. Kind of pop the mic stand there. 30 shifts the language in a very interesting way. Because it moves from if to when. And so God is now saying, oh, and by the way, you're going to mess up. And when you mess up, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, all the consequences are going to come. Invaders are going to come. You're going to be put into exile. But guess what? I'm going to redeem you. And then I'm going to give you new hearts, circumcised hearts. It's not incredible that God is making promises to people. And right as he's making promises, they haven't even messed up yet. But right as he's making promises, he already knows they're going to mess up. And he's saying, and by the way, I'm going to redeem you. It's telling us something that God did not choose them because they're going to keep all the promises. He's not choosing them because they're going to remain faithful to the covenant stipulations. He must be choosing them for some other reason. So we look at this and we come back to David then. And the same holds true to David in 2 Samuel 7 on your study sheet. Oh, back back to the previous point. None of these people received God's promise based on their own merit. And this comes to David. 
Because in 2 Samuel 7, God's promise was not based on David's past performance. And please understand this wasn't based on his future faithfulness. God didn't look at David and say, wow, you are such a godly guy. I just want you to be the one who becomes the king. I want to make promises to you. And he doesn't look at David and say, and I, by the way, I know you're never going to fail me either. No, God knew exactly who David was. God knew that David would mess up. He knew that he would fail. And, And here's the thing. God's promises are based on one thing. They're based on God's glory. This is so important that you get this. I think this is captured in verse 26. Look at verse 26. It says, and your name will be magnified forever saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. See the focus is on God's name here. God's glory. What God is doing in the grand redemptive plan. Why is he doing all this? He's glorifying himself. See this as well in Psalm 23, a well-known Psalm. You know, it's there even before you know it. Psalm 23, one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Do you catch that? His name's sake. Why is God our good shepherd? Why is God working out this great redemptive plan? Why is he true to his promises? Why did he choose people? It's for his glory. It's for his name's sake. And if you don't think carefully about this, this can seem kind of odd. Like God's doing all this just to get glory. Is he an egomaniac or something? Why, why would God do this for his glory? And I want us to see here that it is appropriate for God to do things for his glory. I'm going to read a few passages here from this book. Uh, this is a book I really, I really appreciate. I highly recommend it to you called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. And I appreciate how John Piper talks about God's glory in this book. And he says this, he says, God is righteous. This means that he recognizes, welcomes, loves, and upholds what it, with infinite jealousy and energy, what is infinitely valuable, namely the worth of God. And he demonstrates this quoting Isaiah 48, nine through 11 for my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake. I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory. I will not give to another. And he goes on to talk about this. He says, the reason we are not to exalt our own glory, but God is because he is God and we are not for God to be faithful to the same principle means that he too would exalt, not our glory, but his, the unifying principle is not don't exalt, exalt your own glory. The unifying principle is exalt the glory of what is infinitely glorious for us. That means exalt God. And for God, that means exalt God. For us, it means don't seek your own glory. For God, it means do seek your own glory. And oh my, I want you to hear this because this is good news for you. It's good news for me. That for God to keep his promises, 
for the sake of his name is very good news for us. You see, if God keeps his promises because I'm a a very likable person, oh my, that's a very shaky foundation to base promises on. If God bases his promises because I'm so lovable, well, I might be a really lovable person and I might like be able to mess up once or twice and God would overlook it. But I'm going to wear out my welcome really quickly. But for God to base his promises on his name's sake, please catch this. There is not one moment that God's name is not worth fighting for. There's not one moment that God's name is not worthy of worship. There's not one moment that God's name is not worth protecting. God's name is always, always worthy of worship. Always worthy of praise. And so the base his promises on his namesake means that there is a sure foundation that that promise will never be shaken, that that promise will never be disturbed or derailed because it's based on his name, not on any part of us. You see, the point of this, God working through David, God promising things to David, wasn't for us to look at David and say, wow, what a great guy. It was for us to look at David and say, wow, he has such a great God. And God does keep his promises. God kept his promises in prophecy. There's often near-term and long-term, near and far fulfillment. In the immediate sense, God did fulfill his promises by giving David a son, Solomon, who became king. In the greater sense, God fulfilled his promises by sending Jesus He was the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. I give you several verses on your your notes. I want to read from Luke. Listen to how Luke ties Jesus to David. And this is the angel speaking to Mary. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. See that it's the promise. It's the promise being fulfilled. His throne, his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. God is a promise keeping God. And so this advent, as we consider what God has done in history, as we consider how he has proven faithful. I hope that our responses are similar to David's. And I want to talk about that as, as we come to the end here. First, we need to have a response of humility. What do I mean by humility? I mean that we see ourselves properly. We see ourselves as we truly are. And if you have a right view of yourself, I think you have to be struck by the awe that David had. You have to be struck by that same question. Why me? (laughs) Because please understand this. Just as God didn't look at David and say, wow, you're really impressive. He hasn't looked at any of you and said, oh my, I got to have that person on my team. You are so smart and so righteous and so wise and holy. I just got to have you on my team. That's not what God has ever done. Not for you, not for me, not for any of us. None of us receive God's promise based on our past righteousness or our future performance and faithfulness. 
Hmm. No, we, we lit this candle this morning. We read from scripture. We read that scripture. We, like sheep, we've all gone astray. We fail. We fail so easily. And the Bible says, just as God didn't choose any of these people in the past based on their righteousness, guess what? He hasn't chosen us because of our righteousness. Just as Adam and Eve didn't deserve a promise, we didn't. And yet, I give you Romans 5, 8. I refer to this verse often, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You catch that? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Means he did this before I had any opportunity to impress him. Before I had any opportunity to seek him. And, and I want us to think about this, that I, I, you know, I know in a room, I don't know where we all are in our faith. You might be here maybe with hesitation or doubt in terms of your relationship with God. Maybe feeling like, you know, I'm the kind of person I've fallen short in my life. You know where you've fallen short. You know where, where you don't measure up. Perhaps you shy away from God because you're feeling like, eh, I'm a little too messy for God. You know, I want you to know this, that just as God doesn't look at us and say, wow, I want that person on my team. He also doesn't look at any of us and say, oh my, I don't know how to deal with that mess. Do you see this? That this is the sovereign creator of the universe. This is the God who is doing these things, who is saving people for his glory. And he can save the most self-righteous person for his glory. And he can save the most messy person for his glory. It's God doing it. So, so I just, I, I want to implore you today. Will you stop relying on yourself and simply accept God's promise to you of salvation? Now, for those of us who have a strong faith, this is still an area we need, we need help in because so often we start relying on ourselves and we might be doing good for a while. And then we come to a point where we mess up and we say, Oh my goodness, I messed up again. I just got to distance myself from God because he's disappointed in me all the while thinking that somehow it's me that earns the favor with God. And it's not, it's not. And here's the thing. As we stop relying on ourselves, as we stop trying to earn God's favor, I think that really allows us to come to that place where we can get caught with the wonder of our salvation, where, where we can come before God and have that same response that David had, a response of worship. And, oh, this is what we need to do in this season, my friends. As I said, I don't want us to come to 2 Samuel 7 today and learn facts and learn history and be able to walk away and, and diagram out charts of how different covenants work. These aren't terrible things, but that's not the point. If we do not get moved to worship, we're missing it. Look at David's response in verse 18. Then the King David went in and sat before the Lord. He got alone with God. And you know, one of the things you need to do during this holiday season is you need to get alone with God and spend some time with him. Because here's the thing. The holiday season can be so difficult, can't it? There's so many things that we see to measure up to. You turn on the TV, you see a commercial with the perfect family that you'll never measure up to. I'm sorry, but Karen, you're never getting a Mercedes in the driveway with a bow on it. 
just isn't going to happen. I can't measure up to that. And worse than commercials is Facebook, my friends. We get on Facebook, we see pictures of people with perfect families. I really need to watch out for this mic stand. We see pictures of perfect families and we think, I don't measure up to this. And we get into self-doubt. We, we, we experience this, this thing of, oh, I just, my life is not what it should be. You know, the greatest thing you need in that moment is not new circumstances. You need to worship God. Because God designed us in a way that when we are worshiping him is when we are most fulfilled. God designed us to worship him. He designed us for his glory. And I turn back to John Piper's book, a few more passages as we wrap up. Because I want us to see this, that it's not wrong for God to have designed us for his glory. It is loving of God to have done this. Because there's not a disconnect between God wanting to be glorified and God loving us and wanting good things for us. Here's what Piper says. He says, but is it loving for God to exalt his own glory? Yes, it is. And there are several ways to see this truth clearly. One is to ponder this sentence. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is the most important sentence in my theology. If it is true, then it becomes plain why God is loving when he seeks to exalt his glory in my life. For that would mean that he would seek to maximize my satisfaction in him since he is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him. To explain this, Piper uses an analogy of him as a pastor going and doing hospital visits. And doing a hospital visit as a pastor is part of pastoral responsibility, part of duty. But think about it. You walk into a hospital as a pastor and one of the people in your congregation sees you. They're lying in the hospital bed and say, oh, pastor, it's so good to see you. Thank you for being here. I'm so honored you're here. The pastor puts up his hand. It's my duty to be here. How do you feel at that moment? It's the wrong thing to say, right? Of course, it's your duty. But Piper says, no, I don't say that. What do I say? I say, oh, It's so good to be here. It's such a privilege to be here with you. Why does that speak better to that person? Because he goes on to say this. He says, when someone delights in you, you feel honored. When someone finds happiness in being around you, you feel treasured, appreciated, glorified. And so he goes on to discuss how God's uniqueness allows him to do this. This is not the act of someone with an out of control ego or an unhealthy need for attention. No, he says this, God is utterly unique. He is the only being in the universe worthy of worship. Therefore, when he exalts himself, he directs people to true and lasting joy. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Notice how he defines love here. He says, love is helping people toward the greatest beauty, the highest value, the deepest satisfaction, the most lasting joy, the biggest reward, the most wonderful friendship, and the most overwhelming worship. Love is helping people toward God. We do this by pointing to the greatness of God, and God does it by pointing to the greatness of God. See, God created us to glorify him. He created us to be most satisfied when we're glorifying him. And when I feel something's missing from my life, part of the problem is that I'm focused on me and I'm trying to find fulfillment in my glory. And this will never work because it's not how I was designed. We have to be worshiping God and that's where we're going to find satisfaction. And, And we see that 
as we look at this passage today, I, I hope that David's words become our words. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Now, I don't want us to leave without this final point that David didn't just respond with humility. He didn't just respond um, with worship, but he also responded with belief. He believed what God said. He lived with expectation. God's going to fulfill his promise. Oh, and here's the thing, friends. God is the sovereign creator of everything. And not one moment in history has his sovereign plan ever been derailed by those pesky people he made promises to. In fact, get this, God worked through their weakness. He worked through their mistakes. He even worked through their sin. Why does God work with broken people? Because at the end of the day, he gets all the glory. It's clear all the glory goes to God. There's, there, there's no confusion. If it relied on these people throughout history, if it relied on us, God's plan would never work out but it's going to work out because it's God's plan and he's doing it. And you know, we live in a world today that's just as messy as it's ever been. We live in a world where there's, there's uncertainty. We live in a world where people are still making mistakes and failing in spectacular ways where our leaders fail us. And sometimes we can look at this world and we can say, Oh my God, I don't know how this is going to work out. I think you need a plan B maybe. And can I tell you that God is still on his plan A and he will always be on his plan A that nothing that you or I or anybody else can do can derail his plan. We need to be people who live with expectation of what God is doing. And here's the thing. As we come to Christmas, it's a wonderful time to look back and and, and to marvel at how God uh, was true to his promises and how he fulfilled his promises. But we're not called to just look back. We're called to turn and to look forward and say there's still promises that haven't been fulfilled yet. And God is going to fulfill all these promises to live with expectation Oh my, oh my. Humility, worship, expectation. I hope these are all intentional elements of your life during this holiday season. Let me pray for you. I'd love to have you stand and we'll pray as we get ready to depart. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we are so thankful for this time that we've had with you. And God, I think that I'm not unique in the fact that I tend to underestimate how truly fallen I am. I tend to underestimate how great your salvation is. And God, as people, we need to see more and more who we are. We need to really be faced with we are broken people so that we can truly see how great your salvation is so that we can worship in the way that we ought to, oh God. God, this morning, as we have spent time in this text, my prayer would be that we would go from here and yes, uh, learning things great, but move to spend time with you and to worship you. Oh God, God, you deserve glory. You deserve all praise. You are the only one who deserves worship. And so God, as we head out from here, I, I just pray that you would have your hand on each person here guide them and lead them so that the words that we speak from our mouths, the actions that we do would glorify you because you deserve it. 
that as people see us, that, that we wouldn't live in a way that would bring glory to ourselves, but would glorify you. So God, through us, make your name great in university place and in Tacoma and throughout the world. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for being faithful to your promises for the sake of your name. And so God, we praise you and glorify you and pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.